Thank you. This is David Swanson speaking, and welcome everyone to this evening's uh, webcast or this morning or afternoons, wherever you may be in the world. We are privileged to have Marjorie Cohn and Sam Husseini on the line, and if everything is working, uh, all of you who are looking at the website uh, are seeing photos and bios of them, but briefly I will tell you that Marjorie Cohn is a professor of law at the Thomas Jefferson School of Law. She's a former president of the National Lawyers Guild, a deputy secretary general of the International Association of Democratic Lawyers. She has contributed online commentary to Truthout, Common Dreams, Counterpunch, ZNet, and others. She has done commentary for the BBC, CNN, MSNBC, Fox News, NPR, Pacifica, and others. She has authored or co-authored wonderful books, including Drones and Targeted Killing, Legal, Moral, and Geopolitical Issues, Rules of Disengagement, The Politics and Honor of Military Dissent, Cowboy Republic, Six Ways the Bush Gang Has Defied the Law, I, I always thought it was a lot more than six, and The United States and Torture, Interrogation, Incarceration, and Abuse. Sam Husseini is the longtime director of media and communications for the Institute for Public Accuracy. He's based at the National Press Building in Washington, D.C. He has previously been the media director for the American Arab Anti-Discrimination Committee. Husseini is a longtime associate of the media watch group FAIR, Fairness and Accuracy in Reporting. He's written on foreign policy, media, popular culture, and related topics for Newsday, The Washington Post, The Nation, and other publications. He founded the Washington Stakeout and VotePact.org, and I hope we'll get a chance to discuss some of those projects. Uh, Marjorie and Sam, welcome to the webcast. My pleasure, David. Uh, you should know that I am seeing uh, numbers click upward of people who are joining on the website and on the telephone. Uh, and for those of you who are there, you should be aware that you can ask a question anytime by typing it in. Uh, I think it's at the bottom of the website, and it will show up at the bottom of my website, and I will ask your question of our guests on this webcast slash conference call. If you are on the phone, you have to use Twitter. If you can get to Twitter, you can tweet a question to roots underscore action. Just include at roots underscore action in your tweet, and I will see it immediately. Uh, so we've, this is the third webcast uh, of this week, and we've been talking about whistleblowers and where they come from and how to encourage them and how to help them uh, and what's happening in the field of journalism and secrecy these days. Uh, and of course, a great deal is happening legislatively around the Patriot Act and the USA Freedom Act. Uh, maybe we could start with you, Marjorie. Are, with the passage of the USA Freedom Act, are we now free, or what has happened to us? Well, we are not quite free, although symbolically it's an amazing victory and vindication for Edward Snowden, who revealed this program of massive metadata collection where the government is collecting, the National Security Agency is collecting uh, information on every single telephone call every one of us make. And there has been tremendous controversy about that since Edward Snowden's revelation, a federal court of appeals said that that program was illegal and Congress has just been grappling with it and uh, going through incredible drama and theatrics and finally passed the USA Freedom Act, which is better than it was, but still not where it should be. Um, it uh, will end the bulk collection of metadata from domestic phone companies, but it would leave in place a sweeping surveillance program focused on international communications. And if a call originates overseas, information about Americans could still be collected. Um, it would allow the National Security Agency to continue to analyze the metadata, albeit with a little bit higher standards 
triggered to access it, um, a panel of experts would advise the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Court, a secret court, um, but there are, is no provision for an advocate for civil liberties. So um, it is better than it was, and uh, in the words of of McConnell, who was trying to get the Patriot Act, this particular provision 215, um, reenacted without any amendments or any, any changes at all. Um, in his words, it is a resounding victory for Edward Snowden. When uh, when you say that something will no longer be collected, does that mean something weaselly like it will be held in the hands of a private corporation rather than the government, or does it actually mean it won't be collected in an ordinary use of the English language? No, it is going to be collected um, by by the phone companies the way it is now, but they are going to store the information as opposed to the government national security agency storing it. And uh, so, so basically, um, it limits collection of this metadata. With metadata means uh, who you call, who is calling, who you call, what number is called, the identity of the person calling, how long the call lasts. Um, so it would limit collection of that metadata to instances where there is a reasonable articula articulable suspicion that a specific selection term used to request call detail records is associated with international terrorism. And the government must use a specific selection term which basically represents an individual account or a personal device. So a broad selection term would be all the people in California. For example, that would be massive record collection, and this narrows it a bit, although it's still quite vague. Um, what it doesn't do, though, is to change Executive Order 12333, uh, which is actually used um, for most of the NSA's digital surveillance worldwide, um, and it doesn't change that at all. Um, it also leaves in place another program that was revealed by Edward Snowden that was established under the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act, Section 702, and that's called PRISM. PRISM is still in force, and under PRISM, the NSA collects data from Google, Yahoo, Microsoft, Facebook, PalTalk, AOL, Skype, YouTube, and Apple. And it allows national security officials to collect material including the search history, the content of emails, not just the, the uh, subject heading and the time and date they were sent, but the actual content, um, file transfers, and live chats if they're targeted at foreigners reasonably believed to be abroad, even if the surveillance takes place on U.S. soil. Now, that law, that PRISM law, forbids intentionally targeting data collection at American citizens or anyone in the United States, but it allows for the targeting of any customers of participating firms, and that's all those Microsoft, Yahoo, etc., who live outside the U.S., or Americans who communicate with people outside the U.S. So if you send an email to your friend in Mexico or in France or in Spain, um, they can actually read the content of those emails. And the NSA reportedly increasingly relies on PRISM as its primary source of raw material, and it accounts for one in seven intelligence reports. Um, one of the things that we should keep in mind, David, is that in this litigation around the legality of this metadata program, the government has not been able, and, and there are federal judges who have enshrined this in their legal opinions, the government has not pointed to one instance of this metadata collection and this spying helping to foil a terrorist plot. And that's something that we really need to keep in mind when we're talking about this massive surveillance, this massive spying that is not just infringing on our civil liberties and those of people everywhere, but is incredibly expensive. I mean, it's astoundingly expensive. They're building a huge facility for the NSA in Utah, and now that they're not going to be storing the data anymore, uh, I'm sure they'll have other data that they'll store there. Um, but given the problems we have in this country and the 
real use that money could be put to for education, health care, jobs, infrastructure. Um, it really is still part of the fear-mongering, although not quite as much. I mean, right after 9-11, the Patriot Act was passed, 352 pages, which most of the Congress people who voted for it didn't read. Um, and the executive, the executive branch had tried to get that those provisions through Congress before 9-11 and had a hard time doing it because the Patriot Act was so radical. But they, within three weeks of 9-11, the Patriot Act was passed. And every t- and, and it, but it was supposed to be a temporary measure. And its provisions were supposed to sunset or expire after four years, and so every, uh, five years. So every five years, it would be, come up for renewal. And in a knee-jerk response to the fear that the government has successfully hyped around 9-11 and since, and we're talking about, uh, you know, 14 years ago, um, it was it was automatically renewed. All the provisions were automatically renewed. And this is the first time that there has been any, that, that there has not been an automatic renewal. And the fact that Congress went through such a struggle to get this USA Freedom Act, which is albeit un, imperfect, um, but is better than than what was there before, is, I think, a real testament to Edward Snowden and what he has done for, for us. Absolutely. Uh, and uh, we have two questions, at least two questions already here, and I want to get to them quickly, but I want to bring Sam Husseini into this conversation. You've been listening to Marjorie Cohn. This is David Swanson. Uh, Sam, uh, it, it seems like uh, this story is so huge that it is actually still playing in the news, despite the fact that there is another election uh, looming to save us a year and a half away. Uh, and yet, uh, it, it seems that when Obama came into Washington, uh, there were all kinds of promises of transparency, and we were we had USA freedom uh, guaranteed to us. Uh, what has Barack Obama's performance been? Uh, how has this administration uh, been treating not just the, these leaks uh, from whistleblowers, but the, this this whole arena of surveillance and secrecy uh, in the past six years? Um, well, I mean, I, th- I think as, as many people have articulated, they, there's been basically a war on whistleblowers um, during uh, the, the Obama administration. Um, uh, and I, I know, David, that you, you generally um, are, are wary of using the word war in a situation that doesn't actually um, involve, um, you know, war and people shooting and dying and so on. But but I, I would say in, in this case, so often um, stifling whistleblowers actually helps facilitate literal war, uh, at least in many cases. It, it be that as it may, the um, the... I think if there's a reason that the Obama administration went after whistleblowers as vigorously as it did, and that was because it came in on a wave of um, at least rhetorical, you know, hope and change and all that. And I think that there was a political moment, particularly with the turbulence of the time, with the financial crisis, uh, with uh, people, you know, being fed up at least, uh, if not morally disgusted by uh, the Iraq invasion and so on and so forth, um, that, that leaks uh, of a positive sort of people actually blowing the whistle on government wrongdoing and so on could have um, uh, meaningfully changed policy um, if there was a concerted effort by people inside the government of good conscience to try to get critical information out to root out um, uh, long-standing negative policies, and I think that the clampdown on whistleblowers during the Obama administration, pretty much from the get-go, I think sent the message that that wasn't going to happen, and that the Obama administration um, was not going to meaningfully change um, U.S. policy, as as we've seen, or, you know, we'll change it in sort of conniving ways. Uh, Marjorie, I'm sure we'll get into um, drone policy and assassinations and so on, uh, as well as, as other aspects of uh, of, um, of the Obama administration's policy. I think in, in terms of the, you mentioned the election, uh, David, um, I think one striking thing is that you have sort of the um, somewhat 
anti-establishment wings of the Democratic and Republican parties that is basically in the persons of Rand Paul and, um, and say, Bernie Sanders, who are both running for president, um, both voting against the USA Freedom Act um, uh, uh, and giving the reasoning that, that it doesn't go far enough in terms of um, restoring constitutional rights to um, uh, members of the American public. And, and that's, that's an interesting thing, that you do have sort of the establishment center uh, against the um, anti-establishment, and I say that cautiously because I think that there are limits to how far both Bernie Sanders and Rand Paul will, will go to buck the establishment, but it is a, an interesting dynamic. It is indeed. We've got uh, questions piling up here. I want to go with the first one that came in. Uh, this, this may be for Marjorie, but either of you uh, jump in here. This is from Terry Stern in Wilmington, Delaware. Uh, whistleblowing support seems to be primarily responding to governmental and military abuses. Present global circumstance clearly indicates that international publicly traded corporations are a significant piece of big government successes. Do the whistleblowing laws protect private sector whistleblowers uh, the way they protect public sector whistleblowers? <laughs> this is my additional commentary, namely not at all. Uh, I mean, there seems to be an implication here that public sector whistleblowers have some sort of protection. While well, we've just seen Jeffrey Sterling sentenced to prison. Uh, what, did you have a, a legal answer here on that for us, Marjorie? Well, I agree with you. There's very little protection, if at all, um, for whistleblowers. And Obama has not only gone against whistleblowers more, uh, gone against more whistleblowers, in other words, charged them with crimes, than all of the pri previous administrations put together. But he has also charged people, some people, under the Espionage Act. The Espionage Act was not uh, passed for um, for whistleblowing; it was passed for treason and espionage, which is very, very different. So he is clearly very, very threatened by whistleblowers who are revealing what government is doing. And, you know, I think before Edward Snowden, and, and there was Chelsea Manning as well, who's also a very important whistleblower, and there are a number of whistleblowers we could talk about, um, Sterling, Binney, etc. But um, there was Daniel Ellsberg, and he was probably the most famous whistleblower. He revealed, he sent the Pentagon Papers to the New York Times to publish, and this um, revealed the lies that the government was feeding us about the Vietnam War, and it helped. The, the publication of the Pentagon Papers helped to end the, uh, the Vietnam War. So whistleblowers can have a very, very significant effect, and we've seen the incredibly significant effect that Edward Snowden has had on the this whole debate about whether or not to renew Section 215 of the Patriot Act or to change it, and it was ultimately changed, as we said, in the USA Freedom Act. Um, but whistleblowers have very, very little legal protection, and there are many people who are trying to protect the rights of whistleblowers to file constitutional complaints with the Privacy and Civil Liberties Oversight Committee, and, as well as Congressional Intelligence Committees, um, and prohibit retaliation for such actions. Um, I, I can't. Go ahead, Sam. And Sam, I should note that someone, Sam, if you can listen for half a second, I should note that someone is asking uh, for your volume to be turned up. <laughs> so uh, if you could just uh, maybe speak a little more loudly, that would be great. Um, uh, geez, I can't speak to the private sector part of the question, but um, you know, particularly on so-called national security issues, I think all whistleblowers have a very hard time of it, but in particularly in that realm, um, uh, it, it, it's particularly difficult. Um, for example, um, Schumer um, has a journalist uh, uh, shield law uh, that will allegedly help whistleblowers, but it has a an exemption for national security issues. Uh, and, and there are a whole assortment of other cases in which um, uh, whistleblowers having to do with national security issues um, have uh, an even more difficult time 
um, defending themselves uh, than uh, uh, whistleblowers that don't deal with those matters. And, and what what is the defense of that? What is the justification for thinking that we should not have the same right to know what our government is doing when it comes to matters of of war? <laughs> um, uh, offhand, I can't tell you exactly what what uh, Schumer's defense of that is. That would be a great question to him. Um, I just you know wh- whenever this has come up, it's been striking how little that is acknowledged that 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 exemption exists you know uh when when the subject of uh uh, uh journalist shield law uh, comes up well maybe a, a question for a future washington stakeout people should know that sam husseini uh has a, a website called washington stakeout where you can see videos of him ask questioning uh guests as they leave the sunday morning political talk shows in washington dc having of course not been asked any useful questions and they get asked the useful questions um here's a here's a question that's come in through the website uh and those of you uh listening to this through the webcast can type in questions at any time. This is from Catherine in Brooklyn. I do not remember the name of the man that was on Democracy Now! who was from a whistleblower protection agency, D.C. Where were they for Ed Snowden and Tom Drake? Uh, Well, I don't know what man that was or what uh, organization that was. Uh, Exposed Facts is a useful organization that's one of uh, two sponsoring this webcast uh government accountability project and and several others are are useful um but sam or marjorie uh where were whistleblower uh protectors uh when uh drake or snowden needed them well i i don't know exactly what agency catherine is talking about but certainly when edward snowden uh, when his revelations came out through Laura Poitras and Glenn, Glenn Greenwald and the Washington Post and the Guardian, um, people, I think, people all over the country were, many people supported what Edward Snowden had done because people, one thing people really value uh, in this country is their privacy and in other countries as well. And uh, it was very alarming what what was being revealed. Um, There were certainly people in the government, in Congress, and and, uh, President Obama who took the opposite tack and he was called a traitor um, and uh, and they came out very strongly. Um, but I don't know in particular what agency Catherine is talking about. Um, I would certainly recommend if people have not seen the, doc, the Oscar-winning documentary Citizen Four um, that they watch it. It is like, it, it really is like a thriller um, and it shows Edward Snowden, be, you know, becoming public, his identity becoming public. They're sitting in a in a hotel room and, and uh, Glenn Greenwald and Laura Poitras are there and there's a knock on the door and it's very, very exciting and also very revealing. So I, I do think that there is tremendous support for Edward Snowden and there has been all along, but certainly not official support, which is why um, he is not walking free in the United States right now and, uh, and is uh, in Russia. Um, but you do see in that film that he had lawyers with him on his side uh, from the get-go, uh, that there were people and organizations uh, there to help. Um, Sam, we we were talking uh, earlier, and you were noting that uh, one of the things that this government we have does very well uh, is, is to manage, uh, is to... Uh, paint in a in a better uh, sort of light these pieces of information when they leak out. Um, what uh, what did you have in mind? I think that there are a, a, a number of examples of this, but one of them that that I've tracked that I, I haven't seen a lot of discussion about is um, people might recall that it was WikiLeaks leaking of what they called uh, the. the Cable gate, if I, if I remember correctly, um, that, that is WikiLeaks put out a whole trove of U.S. government um, internal State Department and 
other agencies' cables. We presume that this is part of what they got from Chelsea Manning, who um, everybody on the call probably knows is, is still in prison for potentially many decades to come. Um, uh, and um, this helped spark the, the uh, uprisings um, beginning in uh, uh, Tunisia. There, there were a number of factors that led to them, but that wasn't one of the factors. The, the, the content of some of the documents in terms of how the U.S. government viewed uh, the Tunisian government and its corruption and so on, that that was splashed everywhere, um, uh, caused genuine anger. Um, there and helped lead to the Arab uprising, which of course spilled over into Egypt and so on and so forth. But the U.S. government, I, I don't think they get enough credit for this, uh, have really managed um, the, the Arab uprisings, uh, I think in part because they are so well um, tuned to the Gulf states, and the Gulf states um, are tied to the largest media um, in, in the region, El Arabiya and Al Jazeera as well, and, and others uh, have been able to um, uh, steer uh, the Arab uprisings, um, highlighting them in uh, Tunisia, uh, in um, in Libya, and Syria, um, both secular states that um, were occasionally critical of the United States uh, establishment, and then. Um, what while the uh, Gulf monarchies, uh, which are generally pro-U.S., um, uh, uh, have been sitting pretty, um, and it's it's a real accomplishment, I think. Um, so you you've ended up having the, the net result is you know you had basically failed states in what were um, states that were critical of the U.S., Libya and Syria, sort of sort of going down the same. Rabbit hole or um, uh, sewer pipe or however you want to put it of, of Iraq um, as fundamentally failed states, while Saudi Arabia and the other Gulf shakedoms basically mold the region. And it, it's you know it's sort of an astounding um, trajectory um, that, that things have taken. Um, I don't think that they were smart enough to plan this, but it, it does show how nimble they, they, they've been in terms of working with their allies in the region, in terms of um, you know channeling um, channeling things and um, you know highlighting uprisings and so on and so forth. And it again goes back to the problem of uh, media control and ownership. I think. Exactly. I mean, it seems to me that uh, when someone might be considering becoming a whistleblower and taking some risk to inform the public, they might be interested in knowing they'll have legal protection and some uh, chance of a better future life for themselves. But they also might want some sort of assurance that our communication system, that our media, will actually make the public aware of what they take a risk to leak. Uh, and it seems to me that we can have uh, a front page New York Times story about uh, the president going through a list of men, women, and children and picking which ones to murder with drones. And nobody know about it. Who doesn't want to know about it? Uh, and you can have news that ought to be a front page story, such as the the news that so-called New York Times reporter James Risen uh, leaked, but didn't leak in the in the New York Times, had to put in a book because Condi Rice got the New York Times not to print it that you know that the CIA was giving nuclear bomb plans to Iran, uh, and nobody really knows that. Uh, you know, someone went to took a risk, uh, and someone possibly someone else is going to prison over it, uh, but nobody actually knows it uh, because, you know, how many people actually read a book, even a best-selling book? Um, so, you know, Marjorie, on this, on this subject of drones, uh, what... What do people know? I mean, it seemed I saw polls recently that uh, that support for drone killing is actually going down uh, some significant amount in the United States, despite all the headlines that that cover that fact up. But uh, what do people know, and how do they know it about what's happening with these these drones with missiles on them? 
Well, you know, it's interesting because when we hear about ISIS beheading someone, um, you know, we are justifiably outraged. We don't hear much about Saudi Arabia beheading people for being gay, but, but that happens as well. But in 2009, when Jane Mayer wrote the first comprehensive study of drones under the Obama administration for The New Yorker, it's called The Predator War, and her chapter is reprinted in my book, Drones and Targeted Killing, She, um, Jane Mayer interviewed Vicki Duvall, a former CIA lawyer who now teaches at the U.S. Naval Academy at Annapolis. And Vicki Vicki Duvall told Jane Mayer, quote, people are a lot more comfortable with a predator drone strike that kills many people than with a throat slitting that kills one, unquote. And I, I think that the reason for that is because the media sanitizes the information that we get about this drone program. Um, we hear that these drones are surgical, they're precise, they only target the bad guys, American pilots don't get killed, fewer civilians are killed by drones than killed by manned bombers, and we don't hear the stories of the victims, and there are many. More people have died by drone strikes under Obama than died on uh, on 9-11. We don't see the images of the children whose limbs are scattered around, who are blown to bits by the drones. If we did, Americans would be upset the same way we were upset during the Vietnam War when we saw those images of that, that iconic image of that nine-year-old girl running naked from a, a, uh, an American bomber that had just uh, dropped napalm on her. So we just hear that that these are really good weapons because they don't endanger pilots um, and uh, and they, they the collateral damage is minimal and the collateral damage of course means that civilians are are killed um, the people in the administration call this so-called collateral damage civilians being killed bug splat bug splat think about that um, there is an important film called Good Kill that for some reason, it's got a, a, a you know a, a leading cast: Ethan Hawke and January Jones. It's an it's an incredible movie, very powerful about a drone pilot who is 7,500 miles from his target. He's in Nevada, and how when he's killing people and seeing the faces of these people, and many of them women and children, um, he he really falls into very heavy post-traumatic stress disorder. And the, the title Good Kill comes from, you know, he pulls, pushes the button and 10 sec- seconds later people are blown up and someone else in the room says, Good Kill. Um, it's an important movie. It's got a top cast. There is no reason on earth that it should not be in the main, in the big theaters, but um, you have to see it at these, these tiny little venues. Um, so I think that it's it's really important to get the word out about what these drones are doing and <clears throat> although there is this uh, this feeling that drones result in fewer civilian casualties than man bombers, a study based on classified military data conducted by the Center for Naval Analyses and the Center for Civilians in Conflict, found that the use of drones in Afghanistan caused 10 times more civilian deaths than manned fighter aircraft. Also, um, drones uh, and targeted, well, targeted killing off the battlefield, and we are not involved in a war in uh, Pakistan, Yemen, Somalia, um, and yet the drones are being used mostly in those countries. It's illegal. Um, also, it's immoral. Um, there is and there's a chapter in this book by a philosopher, and uh, he, there's, there's this thing called a deadly surveillance platform where the drone hovers above an area for hours hours on end um, and it's kind of got a whirring sound and the people that are that are below never know when the drone is going to hit and children are terrified they can't sleep um, but then when they're they're not just they're also ineffective in terms of actually protecting us from terrorism and that's really the you know the the ostensible reason for for using them because when people are blown up by drones and you know, less than 2% of the people killed by drones have been high-level al-Qaeda or Taliban leaders. Most of them are civilians or low-level um, fighters or people who 
not even fighters, but, but people who are suspicious, in quotes, or people who are the enemies of the Pakistani government. The Pakistani government um, has kind of a schizophrenic approach to drones. When uh, drones kill a lot of civilians, they complain and they say it's illegal and they say that, they, that uh, their sovereignty is being invaded. And then they turn the other way when the United States wants to use drones as long as the U.S. agrees to kill the enemies of the Pakistani government as well. Um, but when Fasal Shahzad was pleading guilty to trying to detonate a bomb at Times Square, he told the judge, when the drones hit, they don't see children. And, and so that this is blowback from drones. It actually is easier to recruit terrorists to do harm to the United States when they see their loved ones being blown up by drones, you know, young boys being recruited. Um, the, the Obama administration uses two different kinds of drone strikes, personality strikes, which target uh, so-called terrorists or people who are uh, militants, in quotation marks, whatever militant is. Um, but also there are what are called signature strikes, where they don't even know who they're killing. Um, they are killing everyone, uh, every male of military age, say between the ages of 16 and 65, in an area of suspicious activity, um, which, is, which is illegal under any, uh, any legal regimen. Um, and, uh, and Obama and John Brennan, his CIA director, go through the kill list every Tuesday. It's called Terror Tuesday to decide who they're going to assassinate that week. Um, and they do what's called a double tap. So they'll drop a, a bomb. And one of the things that this movie Good Kill shows is that from the time that the drone pilot in Nevada presses the button to the time that the bomb actually drops is a 10-second lag. And so during that time, they can see that, uh, that women and children can come right into the area, and there's nothing they can do to, to, to pull that bomb back. But anyway, they drop the first strike is they, they uh, drop the bomb, and then people run to rescue the wounded if there's anyone left. Um, and then they are taken out with a drone bomb. That's called a double tap. It should also be called a triple tap because then the drones go to the funerals where people are mourning their dead and they bomb the funerals. Um, this does not win the hearts and minds of people in other countries. This does not make them um, want to, this does not make them look kindly on the United States. It makes them want to harm us even more. So this drone program is actually counterproductive. It's actually making us less safe, not more safe. I think that is a critical point, among others. Uh, the, the number of people joining these webcasts seems to grow throughout them. I don't know why so many people show up late, but it's good. But uh, nobody's asking any more questions, so feel free to type in a question, uh, as Terry and Catherine and others were earlier, and we will uh, ask them right away. Uh, in the meantime, let me ask uh, maybe you this, Sam, uh, and Marjorie, feel free to jump in. But it, it seems that... If for those who want to hunt and search and research on the Internet, uh, it is possible to find stories and photographs and videos of, uh, of victims of these U.S. drone strikes and uh, news reports, foreign news reports, short documentaries, movies. Uh, photographs and all sorts of documentation. Uh, and Sam, you are always uh, at, at Institute of Public Accuracy getting uh, useful and relevant guests onto U.S. radio shows. How, how can we get people uh, to see the horror of what's being done with their money in their name, uh, which presumably many people would object to, uh, if it were held in their face and they were they were made to see it. Yeah, I think this is a huge issue um, that, that I certainly grappled with and tried to do some good work, but I don't think that certainly the work that I've done has been sufficient. Uh, I mean, there are occasional reports on drones and people like Marjorie and others um, analyzing thing and I th things, and I think that that is crucial, and I, I've Sorry to say, I, I didn't even know about the movie. I, I will check that out. That's very good to know. Um, well, there have been um, four or five good drone movies and a, a play on Broadway with Anne Hathaway. I mean, it's a, it's a real, it's a genre now, and they all reveal more than than the news tells us. <laughs> um, uh, and, you know, you occasionally um, uh, 
I'm blanking on his name, a gentleman from um, Yemen who testified against drones to a hearing on the Hill, um, uh, Fasi, I believe. Um, uh, in any case... Faraya Muslimi? Uh, yes, yes, that's him. Thank you. Um, so, but but I don't think that we have meaningfully put, put a human face on it. And I think that it would, you know, require, you know, you know, better mechanisms of, you know, something like what I work for, accuracy.org, you know, trying to find relatives of people who've been killed and putting them on his releases if possible. Um, uh, you know, the, you know, getting, you know, timely pictures of what's going on. I think part of the issue what happens is that, you know, there's a constant management of the news cycle to, you know, by the U.S. government that, uh, okay, we, we just did this drone strike and we took out these people, these quote-unquote bad guys, um, and so on and so forth. And then, you know, it, it's not acknowledged or if ever, you know, much later, you know, the negativity of what actually happened and the innocent people uh, and, and so on. Um, so I, I think part of it is a sort of news management problem and, um, and, and I think that there's a lot of layers to it, but I, I don't think that we've, at least speaking for myself, have grappled with and gotten information out in a sufficiently timely and authentic manner. You know, the strange thing about talking about secrecy and whistleblowers around drones uh, is that, and I think, uh, Marjorie, you may disagree with me on this, or you, both of you might, certainly a lot of people do, but there's been this notion created by the, the Obama administration and by the legal community in general uh, that uh, that has this opinion out there that... The, the, expressed by a number of, of lawyers who've testified before Congress and so forth, that these drone kills are of a mysterious sort of legal standing. And if they are part of a war, well, then they're perfectly fine. But, you know, never mind that the wars are all illegal. We'll just ignore that for the moment. Uh, and and yet, if they're not part of a war, well, then they're murder. You know, and uh, and yet we can't really know if they're part of a war or not because the president has put his policy in a secret memo and not shown it to us. Uh, and this strikes me as, a, as an amateur non-lawyer as a blatant misunderstanding of what a law is supposed to be because I thought a law was something created by a legislature and made public so you could try to follow it. Uh, and uh, I, and so I've always sort of not wanted a whistleblower, not wanted a leak, not wanted to see the president's secret memo because I didn't. Uh, I've never thought it was worthy of of any respect. I, I shouldn't think a president has the power to write a memo that legalizes murder. Um, what what are what are your takes on this issue and on the on the legality of killing people with drones? Um, well. Uh, for, okay, I'm, I, that's a great question, David. I just want to add a little footnote to what Sam was talking about, about the, sure. the stories of the drone victims. Um, in my book, Drones and Targeted Killing, there is a chapter by Medea Benjamin, um, and she humanizes the victims of drones by relating things that she learned from victims and families of victims of drones in Yemen and Pakistan. So I, I think, and, and so that's, that, that is very useful. Um, now in terms of the legality of these drones and targeted killing and targeted killing is done, not just with drones, it's also done with man bombers and um, the joint special operations command, etc. cetera. Um, but it, basically the United Nations charter, which is a treaty that we are bound by because it's part of us law under the Constitution um, provides that uh, one country cannot invade another country except in self-defense. Um, targeted killing is only illegal when 
when you target combatants in an armed conflict. But extrajudicial killing, that means outside of any judicial process, is illegal. Um, now, the United States is not involved in an armed conflict in Pakistan, Yemen, and Somalia. Um, and so, and, and even if it were legal, they, we would still be bound by uh, principles like proportionality and distinction, which means that the amount of damage has to be proportional to the military advantage sought. And also, there is a duty to distinguish between combatants and civilians and not target civilians. Now, in 2013, Obama gave a speech at the National Defense University in Washington. Um, he, and there had been publicity, negative publicity about drones and also men starving themselves to death at Guantanamo and being violently force-fed. So in a kind of a defensive speech, um, he talked about uh, preconditions for using lethal force in these targeted killings, and the White House issued a fact sheet. Although they didn't issue the, the secret guidance that, uh, you know, the memo, um, but they did issue a fact sheet. And I just want to briefly go through. First of all, there must be a legal basis for the use of lethal force. Now, it doesn't define whether the UN Charter is, is included there, um, and that would, uh, you know, that would be very, very critical, but you don't hear Obama talk about the UN Charter. <clears throat> Secondly, the target must, must pose a continuing imminent threat to U.S. persons. Um, but this imminent re imminence requirement is really kind of a nullity because um, in 2000. 11, I believe it was, um, there was a leak of a Department of Justice white paper about the killing of U.S. citizens with targeted killings. You know, there hadn't been much opposition to this, these drones and targeted killing uh, when people thought that it was just foreigners who would be killed. But once they learned that it might be U.S. citizens, then people were outraged. And, uh, and because of this whole issue of American exceptionalism and, and uh, the a letter to the editor written by um, Archbishop Desmond Tutu of South Africa led me to invite him to write the foreword to the book, and he talks about this American exceptionalism. But anyway, <clears throat> this this um, <clears throat> Department of Justice white paper says that a U.S. citizen can be killed even where there is no clear evidence that a specific attack on U.S. persons and interests will take place in the immediate future. So if that's the case, you wonder what imminent means. And that's for the killing of a U.S. citizen. Um, then there must be near certainty that the terrorist target is present. But if you don't even have a terrorist target because Obama is carrying out one of his signature strikes, the crowd killings where they just kill people in, a, in an area of suspicious activity, how can there be near certainty the terrorist target is present? Um, there must be near certainty that non-combatants will not be killed or injured, but the administration defines combatants as all men of military age in a strike zone unless there is explicit intelligence posthumously proving them innocent. So how can there be near certainty that non-combatants will not be injured and killed if you're not even targeting someone? Um, there has to be an assessment that capture is not feasible. And, uh, and if you read further, the, it, it appears to indicate that infeasible means inconvenient. Um, there must be an assessment that relevant governmental authorities um, cannot effectively address the threat to U.S. persons left undefined, and there must be an assessment that no other reasonable alternatives exist also left undefined. But this fact sheet would excuse these preconditions when the president takes action in extraordinary circumstances also left undefined. But um, the, what it, it has been reported in the corporate media that the administration is not even following these, uh, these particular guidelines. And in fact, there was, a secret, um, there was a secret memo that said that this imminence requirement, that there has to be an imminent threat to, to people, um, was not being followed in, in it was not to be followed in Pakistan and Obama has admitted that these pre, these uh, this fact sheet is not being followed in his war against ISIS um, and he he's admitted that ISIS is not a direct threat to the United States and yet um, he is using drones in Syria and Iraq in addition to um, these these other areas Afghanistan Yemen Somalia Pakistan yeah, I guess what I what bothers me more than uh, Obama disregarding his own guidelines is 
the idea that he gets to create such guidelines. I, I don't know who gave him that power. What what I've found more uh, useful in terms of leaked information uh, has been information from drone pilots and former drone pilots, uh, which is where the, the background for this mini wave of movies and plays and, and dramas has come from. Uh, I think, Sam, you may have included uh, on some of your releases at IPA uh, former drone pilots or, or people uh, talking about them, but uh, what do you think they have contributed to the debate? Oh, I was actually just about to ask that question of Marjorie, to be honest. Um, I, I just like to say, though, that you know, I think that your take, David, was very humorous in terms of I don't want to see the memo <laughs> because um oh, but but you know i mean so much stuff is in plain sight i mean the new york times today ran a little squib about a u.s soldier that was killed fighting isis um and you know you know so there are therefore boots on the, the ground because <laughs> they're there and uh presumably they're syria or iraq um, and they're getting killed, and there's no authorization, and it's all in plain sight. You know, we, we don't need a whistleblower to let us know that um, there's no authorization for U.S. military action in uh, Iraq or Syria right now, and yet it's it's happening, uh, unless I'm missing something. So I, I think there are limits, in a sense, to, to whistleblowing when, you know, there are things in plain sight. You know, U.S. violations of the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty um US deranged policy non acknowledging Israel's nuclear weapons, something that I frequently ask about uh, at Washington Stakeout. It, you know, these these are sort of elephants in the room uh that are there and, and that and that go unacknowledged. And, and and in fact, a year or so ago, uh, Yemen as a success story, according to President Obama, and now look at Yemen, as bad as any of the other places that the uh, U.S. funded and supported and participated in wars have been taken. And, and people used to come up to you and say, oh, I prefer drones to other types of war, because, as some of them would say, because with drones, nobody gets killed, you know, meaning no Americans get killed. And uh, and you would say back to them, but look, there wasn't any war in Yemen. You're choosing a type of war over no war, uh, and it's going to generate other types of wars. I mean, this was a prediction that many of us made and are, are unhappy and distressed to see come true. But, uh, I mean, can't a case be made now uh, – Marjorie, that uh, and we have just a few minutes left on this webcast. That that the drones are not just counterproductive in the general sense of of creating hostility and resentment against the United States, but but they're creating wars rather than peace in places that didn't have a big ground war as a as an alternative to a drone war. I think that's a really good point, and uh, I, I just wanted to mention about the drone pilots. There's a whistleblower called Brandon Bryant, um, who has been who's been speaking out, um, and uh, he he said um, that <laughs> he said we get this word that we're going to fire, we're going to shoot and collapse the building. They've got in got they've gotten intel that the guy is inside. This figure runs around the corner, the outside toward the front of the building, and it looked like a little kid to me, like a little human person. There's this giant flash, and all of a sudden, there's no person there. And then I say to my fellow pilot, did that look like a child to you? And his, what he has said, and this is in my book I'm reading, um, but he, what he has said is very similar to what um, – uh, Ethan Hawke says in in the movie Good Kill, um, and uh, you know they say splash. That's another thing, either splash or bug splat when when there's when there's a kill. Um, but they are having trouble getting drone pilots because of the level of PTSD. And these are pilots who are not um, they they are not in jeopardy at all. I mean they're they're in Nevada pulling pulling the the button here, um, but they they're offering bonuses 
to people to be drone pilots because there's so much PTSD among drone pilots, they can't recruit enough people to do this. Um, and, uh, and, and I think that this is something else, Sam, in addition to the stories of the victims and the images of, of the damage and, and uh, the victims that are killed by these drones, um, is bringing the stories of these pilots, these drone pilots, they're, they're you know, U.S. military officer, uh, U.S. military um, service members, and uh, and you know some of them are officers, and I think that people need to hear their stories as well. The uh, there was a comment earlier from Catherine in Brooklyn who has now uh, answered her own question, and she tells us the man she saw on Democracy Now was Michael Cohn from the National Whistleblower Center with a book called Whistleblower War. There's that word again. Uh, do, are either of you uh, familiar with Michael Cohn or other organizations? What uh, what groups uh, or other recommendations would you make as we're uh, down to five minutes left on this webcast? I, I'm not. Sorry, can, can I just sorry respond to what, what Marjorie was just saying a moment ago? I mean, sure, sure. I, I think um, you, you've seen people protesting drones at different facilities. Uh, I, I've done a fair number of news releases about protesters in uh, Hancock uh, uh, Air Force Base in upstate New York, but there's others around the country, and I think that kind of grassroots protest outside of facilities where wrongdoing is um, going on is a way that the public can really be brought into this in order to put pressure on institutions um, in order to uh, hopefully, you know, pull out uh, people who could become whistleblowers as to uh, to put out the reality of what's going on um, in, in those institutions. I've just started a little um, feed on uh, Twitter uh, papers project which is just, right now, it's just one flyer that potentially people could pass out at, um, you know, government facilities, uh, corporate facilities, basically calling for people to blow the whistle on wrongdoing by leaking it, uh, blowing the whistle to exposefacts.org. Um, and I, I think that, that that's one way that, you know, the general public can be engaged in this rather than people just waiting around for the, for the next Edward Snowden. Uh, good idea, and uh, we will we've, we will make sure we've got links to these things that are being discussed at StandUpForTruth.org. Uh, Catherine corrects her typing, and the book was uh, Whistleblower Law, not Whistleblower War. That's a, quite a positive uh, revision. Um, Marjorie Cohn, your book is Drones and Targeted Killing: Legal, Moral, and Geopolitical uh, Issues. Um, uh, which people should run out and get now and read. Um, any final uh, comments, Marjorie? Yes, um, I think that it's important in order to to make headway in all of these areas to share information with programs like this, with articles um, and uh, and media. Um, uh, broadcasts, but I also think that it's important for people to uh, penetrate the media by writing op-eds or letters to the editor are not difficult to get published. Um, you can you just peg it to a news story or an editorial or an opinion editorial, an op-ed in your hometown newspaper, keep it under 150 words, and even if your letter doesn't get published, they count up the number of letters from each point of view, and you will help others get published from that same point of view, and we should all be writing letters to the editor all the time, um, pressuring Congress persons, they do respond to pressure, pressuring the White House emails, um, letters. Uh, you know, calls and protesting, getting together and protesting the way they do at Hancock, um, the way they do around the country. Uh, good recommendation. Uh, check out uh, WarIsACrime.org. No drones. K N O W drones. Uh, Voices for Creative Nonviolence. Code Pink. Uh, uh, dozens of peace groups uh, anywhere you are in this country uh, that are doing great work around this. Uh, minute left. Uh, Sam, any final thoughts? No, I, I just uh, it would encourage people to tune in tomorrow. I think you'll have two whistleblowers who I think will have very intimate knowledge of the 
quote-unquote USA Freedom Act and be able to analyze it uh, in detail, which we did a little bit today. Um, uh, Benny and Weeby were both former NSA whistleblowers, so I'd really encourage people to tune into that. Um, uh, as you alluded, my main thing is putting out news releases at accuracy.org. People can look at that themselves, and they can also reach out to media to try to you know, get media outlets to be looking at that material in, in a regular fashion. And uh, exposedfacts.org is, um, you know, the sort of whistleblowing um, project of, uh, of accuracy.org. I encourage people to look at that as well. Uh, yes, indeed. I was not going to, to uh, fail to do that. Uh, accuracy.org, check out what Sam does and spread it around. Uh, we indeed are going to have a double header tomorrow evening on these webcasts. Uh, show up an hour early, 8 p.m. Eastern Time uh, tomorrow for William Binney and Kirk Wiebe, NSA whistleblowers who have come up in each and every webcast thus far, deservedly so. And uh, Binney has been on tour of the, of the Midwest doing events uh, in person, but you can ask him your questions uh, tomorrow evening. And at 9 o'clock, Jeff Cohen and Robert McChesney, a couple of the best experts on media and media reform we've got in this country. And then at 5 p.m. Eastern Time on Saturday, Kevin Gostola, uh, a terrific journalist, and Marsha Coleman Adebayo, a whistleblower from the EPA. Uh, these webcasts are being produced by Roots Action Education Fund and by Expose Facts, both of which need your support, uh, your financial support, and every other kind. And you can go to rootsaction.org and exposefacts.org and donate what you can to help out. Uh, thank you to everyone who's been here this evening, and thank you especially to Marjorie Cohn and Sam Husseini. Thank you, David. Thank you. Thanks, guys. Good night, everybody.